Hey, this is Jared Wellman. I'm the lead pastor at Tate Springs, and this is our podcast. God is telling a story of hope and redemption. Hope and redemption. Redemption that can only be found through Jesus Christ. I hope that this is a blessing and inspires you to discover your part in God's story. And take your copy of God's Word with me. Turn to the book of Romans. We are still in chapter one as we have started this new sermon series called When in Rome uh, a few weeks ago. And um, as you're turning there, let me just kind of go ahead and say this again. If you're part of the membership of the church, I sent out an email uh, this week just kind of letting you know the sensitive contents of this. Um, and that's really mainly for parents with young, young children who have not been able to talk to them about the content that is naturally included here uh, in, in today's passage. And, uh, but I also wanted to say something else before we begin, and I'm just going to kind of read it because I, because I, I think I, I, I want to articulate it the best I can, so just kind of bear with me as we're getting started. So uh, these kind of sermons uh, that, we're, that we have today, uh, they grieve me. Uh, it's not fun. It's not, the, it's not a fun part of being a pastor uh, to take the content uh, about things that are really relevant and difficult subjects uh, in culture that really kind of go against the grain of what, uh, of what culture is saying. Because merely talking about it, merely talking about sin, uh, especially certain kinds, can make people think uh, that we are people uh, who have all this conviction without uh, any kind of compassion, or uh, that we're people who just really kind of enjoy uh, picking on certain kinds of sins or certain kinds of people. And I get it. Uh, I do think that churches in the past historically have not really done the best job in dealing with this subject matter before us today, and I think it's left a lot of broken people uh, without hope. Uh, I think sometimes we'll pick on one sin and we'll conveniently ignore others that we're dealing with. Uh, and uh, and I, I'm, all, I'm actually shocked sometimes at the lack of grace that we, uh, that we tend to, uh, to not have for some, uh, but then expect the grace, the same grace to be shown to us. So I want to have compassion for those this morning who are struggling with this issue in some capacity, either personally or someone in your family, because listen, it's happening all around us. Uh, we, are, we are all touched in some capacity by uh, this issue. Um, in some ways, sharing, sharing the truth uh, makes us, uh, can make it seem like we're inhospitable, kind of like a restaurant who still serves peanuts these days, right? You know, because some people have allergies, but they're not being in, uh, inhospitable to, to, to serve those. The, the goal is not hostility between men or inhospitality from our church, but the goal this morning is harmony with the Lord. That's the goal. Uh, and, uh, and the Lord is a good physician, and he gives us the medicine that we need. Uh, not only what we want, but he knows what we need. And, uh, and so we want to see what he himself has said about the subject. And this is really important uh, because our job as followers of Jesus is to, um, to think God's thoughts after him. Um, because we are, and we're going to see this morning, we are constantly in this, in this kind of wrestling match. We just sang the lyrics, Lord, come and wrestle and win. So just remember that this morning. Uh, because, because he has things to say about this subject. So it's absolutely critical for me to say this. The word of God is inerrant and infallible. And what that means is that it is without error and that it is incapable of having error. And that's our conviction. 
And so when we talk about difficult subjects, we need to understand that that's where we're coming from. It's what the word of God has said. And it's not, it's not merely a record of God's word or an opinion from man that what God has said, what we're talking about here, or even like an outdated mandate uh, that was given a long time ago for a different uh, kind of culture. We're talking about what God has eternally said. And the Bible describes God, God's word as God himself. And so when we're reading his word, we, we can't separate his word from himself. And so the text we're looking at is part of this. It's part of God's word. And it's unambiguous about a specific issue that's been around really since the days of Genesis. We're just taking the issue and we're taking it into new areas of moral real estate that we've really never seen before. And so I'm going to do my best to represent God's truth as it has been given to us. So if you're on the fence about this issue um, or if you know someone who's wrestling with this or if you're personally struggling with this, I just encourage you um, to stick with us towards the end to not just hear what God has said, but also hear what God has said about sin, which is that he, he injects hope into this broken world. So the big question before us today, we're gonna to put it on the screen. We don't have a sermon in a sentence necessarily. Um, we're gonna talk about living in a fallen world, but the big question is this, what does God tell us about homosexuality? What does God have to say about homosexuality? And so the text offers us a really good response and, uh, and listen, it's not so much about what it is. We're not gonna spend time here in the pulpit talking about uh, what's happening out there with people who don't care about God or don't care about the church. We already know what people who don't care about God and don't care about the church uh, have to say. What we're gonna talk about is why it's happening, okay? So we need to understand as followers of Jesus why this thing is happening in this world. And Paul gives us a very specific reason why. So look with me at verse 18 of Romans chapter one. And this is kind of the thesis of Paul's argument. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So we're talking about God's revelation of himself. God's revelation of himself. And, he, and the text gives us two kinds of revelation. He gives us his, so these are gonna be the two points. I'm gonna go ahead and give them to you. God's revelation in creation and then God's revelation in condemnation. So let's begin with uh, talking about what it means that God has revealed himself in creation. This is verses 19 and 20. Look there with me at those two verses. Because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. Verse 20. For since, I'm not going through puberty, by the way, y'all know this about me, every fall when the weather starts changing, I lose my voice. So I nearly didn't have it yesterday. So just pray that I don't lose it. I'm trying to talk really low and, uh, you know, which uh, just to help me not lose my voice. So I think the higher register I get, it sounds like I am going through a change. So verse 20, for, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So he gives us, he gives us his revelation of himself in creation. And then if we're gonna even break that down, he gives it to us in a couple of different ways. So the first way is in verse 19, God reveals himself from within us. He reveals himself within us. Uh, the, there is this theological principle in the Bible known as the Imago Dei. We're gonna do a little bit of theology lessons today. I'm gonna put these words on the screen for you if you're a note taker. Uh, I'm just gonna assume that uh, you might be a, a seminary student here who knows all of this, 
or you may be someone who, who has heard of these concepts, I'm gonna show you why they're so paramount and we're gonna put them on the screen. Imago Dei is, is the Latin way of talking about the image of God in you and in me and man and everybody, every single person that has ever been born has the Imago Dei, the image of God in them. And what it means is, it doesn't mean that we physically look like God necessarily. What it means is that unlike any other creature, any other creature, it means that, and this is critical for Paul's argument, that we have unique qualities that mirror God. And, and so uh, that mirror his character. So we have intellect and we have morality, we have creativity. You don't see my, my dog Biscuit. Uh, he doesn't paint, you know, he, he doesn't do that. He doesn't have the ability to be creative. And so when we're talking about issues, a lot of times what you're gonna hear are people uh, made in the image of God who look to the animal kingdom to get their sense of morality. And Paul's actually gonna address this thousands of years ago, the same thing that we're dealing with today, which hierarchically, by the way, is the same thing that happened in the garden where man stopped listening to God and his word and they started listening to the serpent. And so hierarchically, the image of God means that we are separated. He made us in his image. And so we are set apart in that way. Now, along these lines, a theologian by the name of John Calvin, one of the fathers of the, the Reformation came along and, and gave us this idea from the scriptures of the sensus divinitatis, which is, again, a Latin way of talking about the divine sense of God in man. So it's not merely that we are made in God's image and that we're uniquely created. He's talking about what that means. And that means is that we have the defined sense of God in us in such a way that it's like we have this, uh, this compass in us. He's crafted us in his image, and then he's put this spiritual compass, in, he, he's embedded it in us in order for us to, to always know where true north is, to always know where true north is, what the truth is. And, uh, and so my family and I, we like to go to the Dallas Symphony Orchestra every year uh, for the Christmas show. And, uh, and so we get there and, and, and you know, we're sitting at the top and, uh, and all the instruments are there and they're just playing all these things. They're warming up their instruments is what they're doing. They're trying to get it because if it's cold, it can, it can affect the, the pitch and the tone of it. So they're warming up their instruments and then suddenly uh, the conductor walks out and everyone sits up and, and then you hear the oboe play the A note. And the reason they pick the oboe is because it's this penetrating sound that cuts through all uh, the noise and everyone matches themselves to this oboe, which the oboe, by the way, has matched itself perfectly. So everyone is trying to, to, to match the pitch. That's what the census divinitatis is. It means that God has embedded this in us to always know what true north is, to always know what the perfect A note is in our hearts. So that's what God is doing within us by, by uh, revealing himself in creation. We are his creation. But there's a second way that he reveals himself. He reveals himself from without in creation. So you created in God's image with the sense of the divine will walk out of these doors and you will come face to face with clouds and the sun. Well, you won't come face to face with the sun, but you know, you'll, you'll feel the sun and you'll, you'll see trees and you'll see birds and you'll, you'll pick up the soil in your hand. And, and, and so you have this creation generally that God is revealing himself. This is what verse 20 says that we just read. And Paul is saying that God's invisible attributes, invisible attributes, his eternal power and his divine nature are all, even though invisible, clearly seen. And you say, well, how is his invisibleness clearly seen? Well, just like the wind. You see the wind rustling through the trees and blowing the leaves and, and whipping the flag on the flagpole, and you know the wind is there. 
And so when we experience creation on the outside, not merely on the inside, we know that there is, there is a creator out there. In apologetics, they call this, uh, there are a couple of different arguments for this. We're gonna put these on the screen for you too. And, and these come from Greek words. This is why all these sound different. Teleological comes from the, the word telos, which means purpose. The argument from purpose or about purpose. And then cosmological, which has to do with the world, cause and effect. And so these are a couple of different apologetic arguments that, that people have gleaned from creation to argue for God. But, but even this, even this, and I think this is important, this is not just nitpicking here, even this, sometimes we take these kinds of arguments and we argue them in the wrong way, which is, which is a critical mistake. Because what we'll do with these kinds of arguments is we will call them proofs for God's existence, not evidence of God's existence. You say, well, are you splitting hairs, Pastor Jared? Maybe, but I don't think I am. I think this is, this is really important because if we think that, that the idea of, of our job as Christians is to prove the existence of God, then what we've done is we've said, let's just pretend God's not here for just a minute and let's glean everything we can and then build our way up towards God and give proofs for God that mean that it makes more sense that, that God could exist rather than not. That's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is not saying that it's more probable that God exists than not. He's saying that the evidences can only exist because God already does exist. It's big, it's big. And, and so we have to keep the horse in front of the cart on this issue because if we don't, then our whole compass is gonna be wrong because we're gonna think that we are in control of, of who gets to determine truth. But God is the one who owns truth. And so the result of all of this, of all of this, this revelation of God is there at the end of verse 20, which says that the result is that, guess what? You are without excuse. We're without excuse. There's not a single person who lives that has an excuse to not believe in God. It's called general revelation. And right before this, by the way, is what's special revelation, which is that God not only does this generally, but he does it especially with the gospel and especially through the gospel. Why? Well, because he's thoroughly revealed himself to you and to me. He, he, he's, he's given us evidence. It, it, it uses the word, Paul uses the word evident twice, and then he uses the word clearly seen. It is unarguable. It's as the psalmist says in Psalm 139. He says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. He says, there's nowhere I can go where I can escape from God. He is thoroughly revealing himself. And this leads us to an understanding. Look there in verse 20. It leads us to an understanding which means the ability to comprehend or the ability to, to discern. But there's a problem. There's a problem with our understanding and it's called original sin. Original sin is what happened there early in, in the garden when God gave us his word and his inerrant infallible word and a man decided that they were going to ignore that and uh, remove God from the equation and that led to this whole other trajectory of mankind that didn't surprise God, by the way, but it led to this whole other trajectory. Uh, and if I would have a sermon, I thought about this this morning, and this is not on the screen, but essentially if I had a sermon in a sentence today, it would be something like this, that denying the inerrancy of God, uh, the inerrancy of God's word, or denying inerrancy leads to a worldview of idolatry that leads to a lifestyle of immorality that leads to eternal iniquity. And that's what happened with Adam and Eve. 
is that they decided to deny inerrancy and it led ultimately to idolatry. And so you have the 10 commandments that come about and, and so on and so forth that talk about that there's one God. And so there's a problem with original sin is that it's not just something Adam and Eve did in the garden, but it's something that happened so deeply embedded in them that actually you and I have, have inherited it from them. And so we were born into sin, the word of God says. So as much as we inherit our, our parents' nose and, and ears and eyes and hair color and so on and so forth, we also inherit sin. And this is called the noetic effects of sin from original sin. And so it's not from Noah. It comes from a Greek word, uh, nous, which is the word understanding here. And so even though you have understanding, in other words, about God's clearly evident uh, revelation of himself, original sin is trying to mess it up. And so you have this problem that, that apart from God's grace, you're, you're always gonna get the, the result wrong. So God is clearly, in other words, this is pretty amazing to think about. If it wasn't for original sin, you would walk out and, and, the, and the testimony of God's creation would be so overwhelming that it would be absolutely undeniably evident who God is. But original sin is, is, is attacking us in such a way that we don't see uh, that creation is, is screaming about, loudly about God, uh, but it's affecting us and it's affecting our, our understanding. And so this is paramount because essentially what this means is that there are two things happening in every single human being. There's the image of God, there's a sense of the divine, but there's also the original sin component. And by the way, these two things, if you're a mom and dad trying to raise kids in this chaotic world, these are the two things that you need to teach them to view the world through, that everyone's made in God's image and everyone is a sinner, everyone. So when, when you're trying to explain things to them, you have to let them know these are the two things at play. But here's what Paul is telling us. He's saying, we have to not only know these two things, but you have to understand that these two things are at war with one another. And if you're not careful, you're going to err on the wrong side of the issue. Because as you're navigating and making decisions about things, and you're saying, well, I know what God has said, but I'm going to say this. What you're doing is you're erring on original sin rather than the Imago Dei. And so these are the two major ingredients for our Christian worldview. And this leads us to the second point that Paul gives us, which is this, that God not only reveals himself through creation, but he reveals himself through condemnation. He reveals himself through condemnation. So although there is a clear revelation of God, evident in creation, that is understood by people made in God's image, that the the creation of man is interacting with the creation of creation and, and the sense of divi the divine in us is pulling us towards God like this magnet. The sinful human condition at the same time means that this understanding is not always acted upon correctly. And so the noetic effects of sin are pulling us to false understandings despite the t clear testimony of God in creation, which is this is why the background of this passage is the gospel, Romans 1, 16 and 17. He's not ashamed of this special revelation. So we have this, this thing before us, the truth of God or the lie of man. And Paul says in verse 18 that this false understanding, uh, this original sin causes us to do something at the end of verse 18. It causes us to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Look at that word suppress. It means um, to hold down or to hold back. Hold me back, hold me back, is what it's saying. So the implication is that people through their unrighteous actions and attitudes are actively holding down the word of God. Because the idea here is this, it's not merely that you're passively 
or accidentally suppressing the truth, but God's evidence and testimony is so clear that apart from viewing the world through the lens of God himself, that you are having to actively suppress and hold down the truth. There are no such thing as accidental atheists. You have to have more faith to be an atheist than you do to be a Christian. There are no such thing as accidental false religions. Let me illustrate. So I brought, I brought this beach ball here and imagine this is creation and God is, in a, God is in heaven and he says, I wanna create creation. So, so he starts breathing his life into creation. It's gonna take me a while to do this. So, um, so give me just a second. No, I got it. So thankfully, uh, we, have a, we have a creation already back here. So, so God breathes his life into creation, and here it is. And then he, he, sprinkles, he sprinkles his very good creation on this. And, uh, and it's just evident. I mean, the Garden of Eden, you can imagine Adam and Eve, they're there, and they just see the glory of God everywhere. They hear the birds, they see the trees, and God himself is walking in the cool of the day in the garden which happened habitually according to the, the Hebrew word there in, in Genesis. And, uh, and then they decide to deny the inerrancy of God's word. Did God really say? Is this really what God meant? Is this what God said? And that led them all the way down to uh, the state of iniquity that we have now inherited from them. And so what happens now, imagine, I didn't bring a big tub of water because... Um, you know, obviously that would just be a lot of work and pretty dangerous and, uh, and such. But imagine with me that I'm in a swimming pool and I have this beach ball and, I'm, and I take this. What's gonna happen if I put it on the water? Is it gonna sink? No. It's natural disposition is to just sit on the water and just reveal itself and say, I'm a beach ball, I'm a beach ball, I'm a beach ball. But if I, want, if I don't want someone to see that I have a beach ball, what am I gonna do? I'm gonna take it, I'm gonna start forcing it under the water. And I'm gonna to have to hold it down actively. I have to suppress this thing. I have to push it down and I'm gonna to have to sit on it. And if someone says, hey, has anyone seen my beach ball? I have no idea, bro. And I'm just, and I'm just hiding it. But the moment, the moment that I let go, it, what, it pops out of the top. That's what, God, that's what God is saying about himself. He's saying my, my creation is just, it's just out there, just glor- it's just glorifying me. But what people are doing is they're suppressing this in unrighteousness. It is a deliberate, active thing is what he's saying here. And so as we continue on, what he's saying is that when the truth of God is suppressed, it brings this second aspect of God's revelation of himself, which is his wrath, his wrath, his condemnation in verse 18. Now, we looked at the word revelation when we started, but let's just take a quick moment and talk about what he means when he says that he is revealing himself through his wrath. Because it is in in the Greek, it's in the present passive indicative, which means this, it's making a factual statement about something currently happening where the subject of the sentence is receiving the action. And so in other words, what that means is that the word revealed is a current ongoing action. God is currently revealing himself through his wrath, in other words, because the wrath of God is the recipient of of this suppression. And so God's wrath is just actively, it's the active idea of this. In other words, God's wrath is a current, ongoing and factual revelation of God for those who are actively suppressing the truth. So we're not talking about natural consequences of sin here. That is a thing, that's a thing. 
So if I, if, I, if I inhale smoke in my lungs for 50 years, there's a good chance I'm going to get lung cancer. You say that's a natural consequence of that. That's not what Paul is saying for this particular thing that, that we're about to be diving into in, in just a second. We're talking about God's active wrath being poured out in a way to disclose by evidence that this person is suppressing the truth. They're, they're walking around holding their hand over their eyes saying, there is no God, there is no God. So as much as man is actively suppressing God's truth, God is actively pouring out his wrath as evidence. Let me illustrate. So let's go back to the beach ball here. So if I'm out there and I'm suppressing this beach ball and I'm forcing it down into the water, my arms are gonna get tired. That's a natural consequence. But there's an outside thing that's actively happening uh, if it's a hot summer day, the sun is up there and it's beaming down on me. It has nothing to do with, what I'm, uh, uh, with, with the natural consequences of what I'm doing, which there are consequences for that. But the longer I'm out there just saying, I'm not gonna let anyone know that I have this beach ball, the sun is just beaming down on me and it's starting to burn my skin. It's this active thing happening to me that actually is evidence of the fact that I'm acting like a, like a fool, that I'm out there just suppressing this beach ball. And, and, and so it's this, it's this, and then I have the evidence of this, uh, this sunburn on my skin. So what is, what is the wrath of, of, of God? What is the revelation of his wrath here? Well, well, look with me at verses 21 through 23. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. They professed to be wise, well, look at us. We're, we, are, we, we are on the forefront of, of this, new, uh, this new era in culture. But he says, but they're becoming fools. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Now, that last verse, verse 23, for time's sake, we're gonna focus on that verse. That is idolatry in its purest form. Now listen, we're not talking about Americanized idolatry like too much football, Twinkies, or Taylor Swift. We're talking about actual idolatry where we, have, where we have walked out in creation and we've taken a piece of creation, like maybe a tree, and we carve out an idol and we set it up and we begin worshiping and serving the creation rather than the creator. So it's a worldview. It's a whole other worldview. Now I have... Um, I brought another object lesson for you today, kids. And, and so uh, a few years ago in 2003, I, um, I had got to go to a Dallas Mavericks playoff game. And uh, I was a youth, I was a, um, right outside of youth at the, t- at the time. I graduated in 2001. And so I was helping out with the youth and this uh, youth, other youth worker said, hey, I have an extra ticket to the game. Do you wanna come? I said, absolutely. And we, we, got, really good, we got really good seats. We were a few rows back from floor side. And sitting down there was this NBA legend, some of you will know who it is, Bill Walton, and he was calling the game. And so I was just like, wow, this is amazing. So I had the blonde tips going on at the time, by the way. Um, and so, because, uh, you know, that was what was going on in sync and Backstreet Boys, so we were all trying to be cool. And, uh, and so Bill Walton was down there, so I, I, they said, yeah, you can go get your picture with them. So I went down and got my picture with them, and then he gave me this card and he signed it. So I, got, I have a lot of NBA memorabilia autographs in my home office and in, in my study and in my office. I've, I, it, it is an idol probably in my life. We're talking about idolatry. And, uh, and so he signed this in person. So when I get an autograph that I did not get in person, I have, to, I have to get it verified and I'll get, 
you know, or I don't have to, it's just something I like to do. But you can send it in and they'll say, yeah, this is, this is a legit, but, and it's like FBI people looking at it and stuff. And so, um, y'all are laughing, but this is legit stuff here. So what if, what if uh, I take this very seriously. So what if, uh, what if I got this, this autograph, and I got to meet him, and then I said, oh, or what if he was down there and they were like, yeah, you can go down and meet him. He'll even give you an autograph. And I said, no, that's okay. This guy back here, the sketchy guy back here, he's totally selling Bill Walton autographs. I'm just gonna get that instead. That, that would be absolutely ridiculous where I could meet him and, and I don't have to get it verified because I know, but instead I'm gonna ignore that and I'm gonna, gonna go and, and just buy it off, off the, the, the underground market. What he's saying here, what Paul's saying here is this. He's saying that when it comes to verse 23, when he's talking about idolatry, it is a worldview, a way of viewing the world where you have an opportunity to experience personally the one true God, the creator of creation. And instead of doing that, what you're doing is you're gonna take a piece of creation and you're gonna lift it up and you're gonna worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. Idolatry is rooted in the first two commandments. You shall have no other gods before me and make no other idols. Now, once you remove God from the equation, it's all downhill from there. Once you remove those two commandments, it's all downhill from there. And so on the screen, I have a couple of, uh, we've looked at this before. I love this illustration. It is so simple and so helpful because listen, everybody fits into one of these two worldviews. You're either on the left side of the screen, which is that you believe in a creator and therefore you call creation creation because it's been created by a creator. So everything you talk about is in the context of God's creation. So of course there's evidence because creation itself is evidence, it's all around us. But if you remove God from the equation, then you're on the right side of the screen, there is no creator, you just call it the universe. Carl Sagan said this, the universe is all there was, all there is and all there ever will be. Why? Because in his mind, there was no creator. And now when you, Here's the, here's the effects of this, the, the implications of this. When you remove God, and, and, and some people even will, will try to go on the right side of the screen and try to prove the creator out of the con and say, well, we're just gonna be in this, this blank canvas. We're gonna try to prove the creator from this. You've already removed him from the equation. It's in, you're making it unnecessarily harder on yourself. And so the effects of this is that when you remove God, you will inevitably always replace him with a different deity. And by the way, the deity is usually yourself, the deity of self. And so the result of this kind of worldview is a lifestyle. Your lifestyle will follow whichever one of these spheres you dwell in, specifically your morality and your ethics, specifically your sexual morality and your ethics, your sexual ethics. And so Paul is illustrated, this is what Paul does here in verses 26 and 27. He begins to illustrate a lifestyle that follows a worldview that, that is suppressing the truth of God. And so he says in verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for which is unnatural. And in the same way, also men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now, I understand uh, that what we're talking about here is, um, is an unpopular opinion in our current, current iteration of Rome. We are in Rome 
And, uh, and this sermon series is going to be unpopular with a lot of things happening in our culture. There's a spectrum of, of history of, of earth. And over here, we've, we've been talking about like Christian nationalism stuff. And now we're talking about social justice, LGBTQ plus issues. And, and it offends everybody. Why? Because God doesn't live on man-made spectrum. He, he is all about the kingdom of God. And the cross is gonna offend everybody who's not following a kingdom ethic when it comes to biology, ethics, morality, and all these different kinds of things. And, and so my goal here isn't to beat up on, on homosexuality from the pulpit, but this is an important issue today because we do have Christians who are claiming to be ambassadors of the kingdom who are coming to the conclusion that homosexuality is a natural part of creation, that it's just a natural way to express love. But remember, Paul says here, they are exchanging the glory of the incorruptible God for an image of man. And, and then he talks about even animals. And so sometimes you'll hear people say, well, if you look at the animal kingdom, it's natural there. Bottleneck dolphins do this. And you say, well, yeah, but they're not made in the image of God. So we don't wanna to look to animals to get our sexual ethics. We wanna to look to God to get our sexual ethics. And, and, and so the LGBTQ plus issues some suggest can be merged seamlessly with our faith, which is a brand new thing, which has never existed in the Old Testament, the New Testament, or 2000 years of church history. So please don't hear me as someone who is finding joy in beating up on this particular issue, but as someone who's trying to represent God's truth, because I love you, because, I, because God loves you, as we're gonna see in just a minute, and, and because I love you. And so the text describes homosexuality as a degrading passion, it's right there. It's right there. And by the way, he talks about gender as a thing as well. Genesis one twenty seven, male and female, I created them. And so what's happening is we live in a, in a time where people are confessing to be wise and they're saying, well, gender is a social construct. And it's not. It, it existed before society did. It literally is the definition of a non-social construct. You know what is a social construct? Non-gender ideology. And so we live in a day that wants to just get rid of, of all these things because we call them social construct. But the idea that is here is that gender fluidity is the defini def a very definition of a social construct. And it's one built in Rome, not in the kingdom of God. And it's designed to destroy the biblical construct of God's design in humanity. So according to Romans 1, a homosexual lifestyle cannot stem from a worldview that has God as its creator. You can only get it by taking a piece of creation, man, and redesigning it in your own image. And this is a scary reality here because Paul's argument is that not only is this kind of lifestyle incompatible with God, but it's actually a revelation of his wrath. And that is why we're talking about this. Because... This is not God's goal for any person. He did not, his goal is not to create people so that he can just exercise his wrath and reveal his wrath. You know, the other day I went, uh, our family went over to another church member's house and, and uh, the kids at the after dinner started playing with dominoes on the ground. And they do what kids do with dominoes. They stack them up, you know, the way you would stack them up and you put them in a line and they were creating kind of a snake trail that they would knock down the dominoes and they'd all fall. There's only one way you can do that with dominoes. You really can't put them on their side. You could, but it's not gonna be as effective. You certainly can't put them on their corner, nor can you put them on their edge. Not, I'm not talking about their side on their edge. The, the way for that design to work, to show the beautiful uh, trajectory of, of that snake falling is, uh, is just to stack them the way that they're designed. 
And Paul's saying that what's happening in this kind of lifestyle is that it is out of step with God's design. And so what happens in verses 24, 26, and 28 is this. It says, God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. And his, and his wrath is being revealed in this way. So this is not only true by the way of homosexuality. It's also true of a bunch of things. Look with me at verses 28 through 32, the last few verses. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, they suppressed the truth, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do things which are not proper. They are filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. So he gives a list of all these things that are actually evidences of God's wrath. And this is actually helpful for the pull that some of us are feeling, perhaps, to embracing this kind of lifestyle. Because in fact, you'll hear, you'll hear it said sometimes, well, God makes people this way. But God doesn't make people homosexual any more than he makes people idolaters or makes people greedy or gossipers or evil or murderers. We'd have to apply the same kind of mentality and logistics to all of these kinds of things based on what we're seeing here. So if we're gonna say that God makes people th that way, then we would also need to say that he makes people as, as murderers. So why does he give extra attention to that kind of lifestyle? Well, ultimately, and he says this even in his letter to the church in Corinth, it's because you're taking the image of God and you are designing it, you are repurposing it in a, in a way that is, uh, that is antithetical to God's design. And to put it into uh, modern day terms, an LGBTQ plus mentality is a worldview about God's creation that does not follow from the creator. This is important because we are in a time when churches are coming to pull this issue out and say, well, you know, all the other issues are still wrong here, but we're gonna pull this one out and we're gonna draw a circle and say, no, this one isn't, this one's okay. We do literally the exact opposite of what Paul's doing here. Where Paul pulls it out and said, no, we're gonna put a special attention here. We put it and we say, no, we're, we're gonna go the other direction with this. But he's not, we don't do this with other issues like polygamy. We're not doing it with other issues like that. We're doing it with this one because there are people who are suppressing the truth of God and going in a different direction. And we're trying to normalize it. Paul says in verse 32, we have to be careful about not only doing these things, but giving hearty approval to those who practice them. So why do we look at this one issue and try to normalize it? Why is that happening in culture? I think it's because we've lost the plot. We've lost the creator's plot to his story which is this, there is a cost to following after Jesus. There's a cost. And listen, people who, who are struggling with homosexuality are not the only people in the world who, who struggle with that, that manifestation of sin, but who are trying also to follow Jesus. That, and, they're, they're, and, they're, and they're saying, well, maybe I just put these things together. No, there's a cost to following Jesus, which is to repent of sin and turn to God. And so, the, so as we think about this, we have to understand that all of us sin. All of us are made in God's image and all of us have original sin. So the text is clear that he doesn't make people homosexual any more than he makes men murderers or men glutton, uh, struggle with gluttony or any of these kinds of things. And so the nuance is that people in this broken world are born into sin and sin can manifest in a variety of ways. So God doesn't create people of sinners, as sinners but due to original sin resulting from a denial of God's word, sin begins to manifest itself in various ways at conception. 
And we are called to abandon these sins, repent of these things, because what we get is so much better. Listen to what Luke says in chapter 14. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Look at the last few words in verse 28. Estimate the cost. As I said earlier, a lot of times the church, we tend to beat up on that one particular sin, and, and, and it's true. Sometimes we'll say, well, this person obviously struggles with gluttony or whatever. There's a variety of ways that sin manifests itself at conception. And what Jesus teaches us is that we need to be people who understand that there's a cost to following Jesus. Sam Alberry this week, who's someone who has, uh, who has said that he has same-sex attraction, but follows Jesus. And he said, I have chosen to remain single and not, and not uh, get into that kind of life because from the word of God, it says it's a sin. And then, and then uh, other pastors and churches are saying it's not a sin. And he's saying, you're saying the same thing that Satan said to, to Adam and Eve. You're taking the word of God and you're saying it, I, I, that, that this, is, this is not good enough, this lifestyle that, I'm, that I have. And so what do we get in return? What, like if, if we're going to deny all these things that we are inclined to in life, all the things we're attracted to, I'm talking about generally about sin. What do we get that's so much better? I have this picture on the screen, but I also brought the books. They're right here. This is from this author who's written this series by Edward Gibbon, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. And look at the aesthetics of this, if you can see it. The columns are built and slowly over the years of the Roman Empire, they begin to crumble. And you get down here at the end and they're just this decaying structure of a kingdom that once was. You know what the Bible says about the kingdom of God? It says that it will never fade away. That when Jesus comes as king, as king of kings and as Lord of lords, that he will set up a kingdom that will never fade away. And and Jesus has a lot to say about the cost of following him. He says, if your eye is uh, causing you to sin, pluck it out. Your hand is causing you to sin, cut it off. So there's a cost. For some people in the world, it's this thing. For some people in the world, it's another thing, but we all have it. We all have this. So here's how I wanna, here's how I wanna um, conclude this message this morning. Paul's discussion on his revelation in creation and in condemnation reveals that, it reveals the truth that God desperately loves us. And so whatever our sin is, God loves you so much that in your brokenness, he doesn't want you to just kind of go the way of the world, but that he sent Jesus to die in your place so that you can have everlasting life. And what you get in return for denying all these things on earth for however long we live is you get eternity with God. You get his grace, you get his mercy. Second Peter 3, 9 says, the Lord is patient with us not wishing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. So there's a cost to denying ourselves and following after Jesus. And so for those of us who trust in Jesus, there's a cost. If you're someone who doesn't struggle with homosexuality, the cost for you is still holding on to this this truth in a world that is increasingly making it hard to do that, making it very unpopular. There's a cost to that. For those of us that do have sexual sins, there's a cost as well to following Jesus, which is to deny those things and turn to Jesus. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, what I wanna ask you to do this morning is this, is is just to be honest in your heart with the Lord about the things that are going on in your life.
Some of us have family members who are living that kind of lifestyle and it's caused some tension in our lives. Jesus talks about this. He says the gospel, the truth of the gospel is going to divide families. It's not his heart. He doesn't want families to be divided. He's just saying that holding on to the truth is going to sometimes cost you things related to your family. Sometimes we tend to go the other way whenever we have a family member that is walking through this. We tend to to go in their direction rather than what God has said. These are real things we're struggling with. Maybe you're someone who has a sexual sin in general. Ask yourself, am I willing am I willing to cut these things out of my life so that I can trust in Jesus and follow him with my life? Because God loves us so much, he's not going to allow us to continually live a lifestyle that disobeys him and at the same time represent and be an ambassador of the kingdom because he loves us that much. Thank you for listening. At Tate Springs, we believe God is telling a story of redemption that can only be found in Jesus Christ. If you'd like more information on how you can have that kind of a relationship, please visit tatesprings.com and let us know. We love you and want to help you discover your part in God's story.